Thank you for that kind introduction. I thank uh, the uh, Clement Center and the Strauss Center for the invitation. Uh, Jessica, who organized everything, thank you very much. I know I saw, there you are, thank you, I saw you. Uh, Jeremy and Mark, thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's been uh, wonderful to be back in Austin. It's uh, you know, the great cultural city, and then there's the den of iniquity. That, that would be the Steelers bar I walked by today. I picked up my pace when I saw that, because I'm from Cincinnati, and I didn't, you know, had to be careful in that neighborhood anywhere there are Steelers fans. Um, I'm going to talk today about the Wales and Nations book, but it also is a, is a springboard into um, a book I'm going to start, I'm sort of starting uh, thinking about, which is an environmental history of the Cold War, uh, which I think is something that uh, needs to be done. There are historians who are writing about the environmental history of the Cold War. Obviously, there's tons of general histories of the Cold War. Um, but environmental historians haven't quite gotten into it as much as I think they could. And so I'm going to take what I learned about whaling, uh, particularly Soviet whaling, and try to make some sense out of that. I uh, see what it says about environmental uh, issues in the Cold War. So let me see if I can make this thing work. All right, so I'm going to first start with this puzzle from Moscow. One of the dis disappointments in the book is that I was not able to use this postage stamp image from the British Antarctic Territory, which I think it's great just that they have postage stamps. Um, I don't know, I didn't know penguins could send mail, but apparently they can. And the stamps that they use for their 5P uh, postage is this uh, image of Neil McIntosh, a scientist not known outside of whaling circles, and his discovery expedition. Neil McIntosh, throughout most of the 20th century and the discovery expedition, they did uh, whale science in the best way they could. If any of you are ornithologists, birders, you know that the way you track birds is you catch them in nets, you put a little band or a ring on their foot, and then you hope that somewhere somebody catches that bird again, and they compare the data they have with the data you have, and then they can learn things about the birds. It's kind of hard to catch a whale in a net and put a ring around it. So what you have to do instead is fire an aluminum tube into it. So using the principles of bird ringing, as they say in Britain, they basically wanted to catch the whales the first time. They would fire these foot-long aluminum tubes into the whale. I'm guessing this is the intern. He got the tough job of packing them in the box. Um, the whale, the tube has a serial number on it. And basically it says, if you find this tube, uh, please send the following data to the Discovery Expedition in London. Throughout the course of the 20th century, the British scientists uh, got close enough to about 10,000 whales to mark them with whale marks, and they recovered about 10% of those. They were recovered mainly by whalers. The whalers would catch a whale, they'd be in the process of uh, rendering it, <coughs> boiling it down into its pieces, and they'd come across this aluminum tube that was stuck in the blubber, and you know, sometimes they would return the data. So about a 10% hit rate. So this is cutting-edge whale science in the 20th century. Well, in 1963, the British government got five pieces of data from the Soviet government about whales that had been caught in the 1961-62 season. The first piece of data was about a humpback whale. But when the British scientists looked at the data that the Soviets had sent them, they realized it didn't match the data that the Soviets had turned in officially to the government in Norway, which is, I'll talk about that in a minute. So they thought that was kind of a puzzle, that they would get the species right, but the data didn't match up. The second mark had been recorded as being fired into a sperm whale, but the Soviets said it had been found in a humpback whale. Now, that's kind of a tough mistake to make if you're a professional whaler. They don't even face the same way. I mean, it's, you got to really, you, know, you can be able to make, you know, tell the two, two whales apart that way. And the third, and fourth marks were also in the wrong species. They had been fired into blue whales. They were reported from first a fin whale, and then the next one was reported 
uh, that had been fired into a humpback whale and reported from a fin whale. Fin whales were at this point legal to hunt. There were serious restrictions on hunting blue whales and humpback whales, and even some restrictions on sperm whales. And the fifth mark had never actually been used. They sent back a serial number that had never been used by the British government. So when the British fisheries minister is appraised of this letter from Moscow, the first thing he says to the British scientist is, okay, what are the chances you made a mistake? And the British scientists, you know, not very happy about this question, say less than 1%. We, we know the difference between a humpback whale and a sperm whale. And we're right on top of them when we fire these things. We know what data we've got. So the next question is, so what do we do with this puzzle from Moscow? The, what does, why are the Soviets sending us fake data? And back and forth it went among the scientists and the fisheries minister, and in the end they decided they had no idea what the Soviets were doing and there was nothing they could do with it. There was really no point to approaching the Soviets in the International Whaling Commission and saying to them, you're sending us fake data. The Soviets would either say, this is your problem, not ours. They might actually leave the Whaling Commission if they felt enough pressure. In any case, they weren't going to just admit to it. So this went down as a mystery. My own theory is that the people who sent the data from the Soviet government were trying to tell the British all the data that the Soviet government has been filing is wrong because this is the real data. And they were 0 for 5. So all the data that you've gotten from them is incorrect. But there's no way to know exactly what that puzzle meant. So I'm interested in trying to figure out now what the, the Soviet view of whaling, Soviet participation in whaling, what that tells us about some larger questions about the Cold War. And there are a lot of people who've written about the Cold War. Doug Wiener's got this fascinating book, uh, Little Corner of Freedom, where he argues that actually nature protection was one of the things you could do in the Soviet Union pretty much without risking your bodily harm. You could advocate for setting aside nature reserves even in Stalin's time without ending up in the gulag, even though Khrushchev referred to them as oddballs. So it wasn't a thing of honor, but you could do it. John McNeil has done environmental histories of the Cold War and edited collection. There are lots of people writing essays you know, about Agent Orange and Vietnam, things like that. But the two books uh, that, that are most interesting to me are this recent one, Plutopia by Kate Brown, looking at Soviet and American uh, nuclear production cities, Richland, Washington, and Ozersk in Russia that were producing plutonium. And then the work by Paul Josephson, who I think puts out a monograph every month at the pace he, he publishes. And he's done a lot of work on Soviet history of science and environmental history. Both Brown and Josephson argue, um, they really seem to emphasize the similarities between the United States and the Soviet Union in their treatment of nature. And in particular, um, this idea that the Cold War forced a militarization of nature. Josephson calls it a war on nature, particularly in the Soviet Union. But Josephson constantly says, you know, similar things are going on in the United States. I certainly agree that there are some very important parallels between what's going on in the U.S. and the Soviet Union, but I think they overplay the, play the similarities, and I think they're really important differences that ultimately, to me, are important. Um, I have this picture of uh, Alder Leopold here, just because Alder Leopold's cool, and if I have the chance to put him up, I will. But uh, Leopold is, uh, suggests to me some of the pressures in the United States in the early Cold War. In 1947, he's on the Wisconsin State Conservation Commission, and there's a plan to dam the Fox River and build an industrial plant along the side of it that he's opposed to. Now, Leopold is a Republican, he's conservative, he's not um, a modern environmentalist in the sense of sort of, I mean, he's sort of not really, he's sort of strangling the tree rather than hugging it in this particular case. So he's, uh, he's not uh, 
far on the left in terms of any environmental measure, but he's a real bona fide conservationist. His friends are telling him, you have got to vote to let the construction on the Fox River go through. And he says, it's one of the last wild rivers in Wisconsin, and to me, an America that's completely industrialized is not worth defending in the Cold War. And Leopold, of course, goes on to, I mean, he dies shortly after, but he becomes an environmental saint, in effect, arguing that there are places that have to be set aside, and uh, he does not lose respect in the Cold War for that. I want to show you briefly a video that suggests, uh, where are we here? I'm a history professor, so technology, you know, is a... Now, why did this... Uh, Interestingly, this, oh, all right. It was here a second ago. Trust me, it was here a second ago. I think it's, it's a different tab. You need a different tab? Okay. No, I only have one tab. Maybe it's over here. There it is. Oh, we opened it twice. That's what happened. All right. So I'm going to show you this video for a second. It's going to show a few things. First of all, it's the Greenpeace confrontation with the Soviets in 1975, a very famous image from the 1970s where the Greenpeace activists put their Zodiac between the Soviet harpoon ship and some whales, and they actually catch film of the Soviets harpooning whales, which had never been seen before uh, except on whaling ships, and that was not for public consumption. And then I'm, the particular part I want you to listen to is Paul Watson, uh, who's obviously very famous today. And what he says at the end about the lessons he drew. There's Paul Watson. And in front of us is there eight magnificent sperm whales that were fleeing for their life. And every time the uh, harpooner tried to get a shot, I was at the helm, so I would maneuver the boat to try and block the uh, harpoon. We are right between the Soviet ship and the whales, and Bob is looking at, at the harpooner, and the harpooner's not shooting, but somebody from the bridge talks to the harpooner, and the harpooner nods, and Bob looks in his eyes, and he knows this guy's going to shoot this harpoon. Suddenly there's this incredible explosion and this uh, harpoon flew over our head and slammed into the backside of uh, one of the whales and, and she screamed. The whalers purposefully shoot at a female first because they know that the bull whales will attack them. And then when the bull whales come to attack them, which is exactly what happened. He was waiting for them and uh, very nonchalantly pulled the trigger and sent a second harpoon into the head of the whale and he screamed and fell back and now the water's full of blood everywhere from the two dying whales. And, as this whale lay, uh, you know, rolled in agony on the surface of the, the ocean, I, I caught his eye and he looked straight at me. And we're looking right into his eye, which is about this big, it's huge. And we're looking into the eye of this huge sperm whale. And I, I have to tell you, it, it's sort of beyond emotional. You know, when you, there's certain moments that are so emotional you're just in brand new territory. I began to think, well, why were the Russians killing these whales? You know, they didn't eat sperm oil meat, uh, but they did use the sperm oil to make uh, high heat resistant lubricating oil for, for machinery. And one of the pieces of machinery that they used it in is the manufacture of intercontinental ballistic missiles. And I said, here we are destroying this incredibly beautiful, intelligent, socially complex creature for the, for the purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass destruction of humanity. And that's when I I came to you with a, you know, like a flash of, we're, we're insane. We're just totally insane. And from that moment on, I decided that I work for whales, I work for seals, I work for sea turtles and fish and seabirds. I don't work for people. I think there's a, it's a fairly uh, common understanding from environmentalists about the Cold War. It's, uh, we are insane. 
as a, as a community, not uh, one particular size and saying this is sort of a global, uh, global problem. What I'm going to suggest later, though, is I don't think uh, Paul Watson entirely believed that himself. Um, and that there are, there are important distinctions that even he understood, even as he didn't want to acknowledge them. So three big points I just want to make today. First of all, in terms of the similarities, there's no doubt that the Soviet communist and Western capitalist blocs were in competition to commodify resources, and particularly the name of uh, Cold War competition, to show that they could produce more from less. So we've got parallels in the 1930s. We've got the US Dust Bowl, and then what the Soviets do in the Virgin Lands campaign is uh, equally an environmental disaster. Both West and uh, Communist East are trying to get whales, as, see them as commodities, and use them as such. But I do think that what's particularly important is the lack of dissent in the Soviet system. It, there's no check on the bad environmental ideas. Um, years ago, I was doing some research in the Foreign Relations series and ran across this idea of using nuclear power plants to create desalination plants to create, turn salt water into fresh water. And the Americans and the Soviets in the 1960s were both racing forward to export this idea as part of uh, their plans to sort of improve the developing world and show that their technology was best. And as I was saying to the grad students at lunch, a science advisor in Johnson's administration said, maybe we ought to see if we could build this in, in Los Angeles first before we actually export it to Israel and Tunisia, the countries that were most interested. And of course, you know, Los Angeles has not quite gotten around to a nuclear power desalination plant, probably thank goodness, because it was a really bad technological idea. The Soviets went ahead and built it. The big technology, there was very little way to stop those big technology ideas. And I do think in the long run, the lack of flexibility on these environmental matters suggests part of the reason why the um, struggle between the West and the communist bloc uh, ended in the way it did, the failure to adjust on the part of the Soviets. So let me talk about whaling a little bit to put this in context. Uh, most people, when they think about whaling, there's sort of this romantic idea of you know, the wooden ships and the iron men, and you know, the whale can fight back. You know, that's the whole point of Moby Dick, right? The whale sinks the ship. Well, that's not 20th century whaling. The whale doesn't fight back in 20th century whaling. Well, the whale fights back and it dies. Um, uh, Ahab, speaking with a Russian accent or Norwegian accent, does not have any peg legs. He's quite comfortable. What's mainly different in the 20th century is that the whaling is really around Antarctica. Now, people had known that there were whales around Antarctica for a couple of centuries, but the whales that are down there, blue whales and fin whales, are too big and too fast to hunt by traditional wooden ship and iron men methods. If you're rowing a boat after a fin whale that can swim 15 knots, the whale's waving goodbye with its flippers pretty quickly. If you're harpooning a 70-ton fin whale or a 90-ton blue whale with an old-fashioned hand harpoon, you better let go of the rope because you're dead because it's going to pull you under the water. So the old traditional methods are not going to take the fin whales and blue whales of the far southern waters. And there are hundreds of thousands of them waiting to be tapped. So a couple of technologies come along. This is really an international story, but Norway is central. This is actually a Russian catcher boat. The Norwegians do two things. One, they invent the exploding harpoon, which is basically a cannon with a huge metal lance that has hooks. When the lance hits the whale, the hooks come out and it gets uh, stuck in the whale. And then you basically can tie the whale uh, fast. The Norwegians also perfect uh, these small steam-powered ships. Obviously, they're not the only ones building steam-powered ships, but they perfect them for whale hunting. What they do is they have a, um, they build a bridge so that the captain can be up here piloting. When he gets close to the whale, he runs out, uses the harpoon. The harpooners are really highly skilled, highly trained uh, people. The Norwegians uh, pretty much corner the market on skilled harpooners. It might seem easy to hit a blue whale, but you're in the Antarctic, your ship's moving, it's trying to get away. It's not easy to hit a blue whale. 
The other big breakthrough is the invention of the floating factory. So early in the 20th century, when they finally had the technology to kill blue whales, they still had to get the blue whale someplace where there was enough fresh water and enough stability to process it. So the creation of big steel ships gives them an opportunity. And in particular, Norwegian in 1922 comes up with the idea of cutting a hole in a ship without sinking it. If you try to pull an adult blue whale over the side of your ship, you don't try that a second time because you're in your life raft saying, that was a really stupid idea. So you have to bring it up the axis of the ship. So they have the stern slipway. You bring the whale up onto the deck and you can begin flensing it, cutting it into pieces. You still need water. So it's a combination of getting the stern slipway and also improved condensers to pull the water out of the air. The early steamships, they, they could get enough water to either run the steamships or run the whale processing plant, but not both. But as they get better and better technology for pulling water out of the air, suddenly these ships are now free to go anywhere there are whales for months at a time. And this is the kind of scene, what's going on, on the deck. They're stripping the whales down to their meat, to their blubber, sometimes to their bones. Depending on how many whales are available, if you go back to this picture, you'll see that there are quite a few whales tied up to the Norwegian ship Thor's hammer. In a case like this, they might just take the best parts and throw the other parts away, but if they only have one or two whales at a time, they will process the whale completely. And this is what they're looking for, margarine. The big technological breakthrough in whaling is not the stern slipway, although that's important, it's a refining technology that allows them to take whale oil and convert it into palatable margarine that doesn't taste like fish. Because margarine tastes like fish, nobody's gonna eat that. But if it tastes like butter, kind of, um, then that's something palatable. And the whale market accelerates after 1925. The demand for whale oil in Europe, in particular, goes to the roof. It's largely a European commodity. So most of the whale oil that's being gathered from 1925 to 1960, this is what's happening to your whales. It's ending up on pancakes and toast. There's a, there is a small market for whale meat. This comes from the United States, Moby Dick whale meat. I would not want to be the advertising guy who has to figure out how to sell Moby Dick whale meat to anybody. Um, I don't know, it, it attacks your ship and kills you. I'm not really sure. So anyhow, this is, this is the, the market is for margarine. In the late 1930s, the market for whale oil is basically insatiable. And there are many floating factories down in the Antarctic waters. They're killing tens of thousands of whales, more than 30,000 blue whales in one year. And people around the world are beginning to be worried that this is an unsustainable harvest. In 1946, a year after World War II ends, the United States calls a convention of nations interested in whaling in Washington in November for the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling. They have the Norwegians and the British, the two main whaling countries in the world, pretty much on board with the idea of calling a convention to create a permanent commission to regulate whaling on the high seas. This is the serious problem. How do we get those whaling ships that are free from stopping anywhere because they don't need water, they don't need supplies, they go for months, how do we actually regulate them? If the Norwegians regulate their ships and the ship owners are unhappy, they might just say, you know what, we're moving over to, Norway, to Sweden or we're moving over to some other country where the regulations are not as tough. So we need to come up with some international system that'll keep whaling country, companies in their countries and get the countries into the, uh, this new whaling commission. The Whaling Commission has a convention drawn up in 1946. Uh, it is put into place by 1949. And then each year, the convention has a schedule of rules that it puts out for whaling. Now in the 40s, this schedule was pretty straightforward. 
there was a global quota of 16,000 blue whale units. And a blue whale unit is uh, either one blue whale or a mixture of other sizes of whales. To get to the quota, everybody who's a member of the Whaling Commission has to radio in their data to a bureau in Norway every week. We caught this many blue whales, this many humpback whales, this many fin whales. Here's where we caught them. The bureau in Norway keeps track of the global quota as it's being caught and then tells everybody when the season ends. There is an open and closed season. There are rules about what whales you can take, how big they have to be, those sorts of things. But the key thing is the global quota. And the negotiations about the global quota will go on for most of the Whaling Commission's history. It's been locked at zero since 1982, but the Japanese keep trying to change that. So the schedule is the really important part they're going to negotiate about every year. So here is the British delegation signing, and we have lots of these pictures of the various delegations signing. The Whaling Commission is generally not thought of as a success. There are far fewer whales now than there were in 1946, but it was also dealing with a very difficult problem of regulating access to a high seas resource and coming up with rules that were strict enough to actually stop the slaughter, make it sustainable, but also loose enough that countries wouldn't leave the whaling commission. This was their big fear. There might be a whaling country that says, we don't like the rules, we're out of here, we're going to go off and do things on our own. The whaling commission would put together these totals, kill totals, and they would use those data to try to come up with uh, numbers for how many whales could be killed in any particular year. You can see here the last full year before the war, 1938-39, 45,000 whales killed, 38,000 of them in Antarctica. Actually, far more whales killed 50s and 60,000s in the 50s and 60s, um, but these are generally smaller whales. So that in that sense, the whaling commission fails. But the data that the whaling companies turn in is critical. It has to be accurate or else the whaling commission has no basis for making regulations, particularly for lowering the quota. Um, not everybody in the whaling commission was an angel. The country of Panama got into whaling courtesy of Aristotle Onassis, who uh, basically picked Panama because it did not have any infrastructure for whaling. Um, he then got his own personal lawyer appointed to be to Panama's delegate to the International Whaling Commission meeting, which is kind of against the rules, but they didn't really have rules to stop him. The Whaling Commission did have some really excellent diplomats. Uh, Frank Corner from New Zealand wrote some of the most wonderful reports on Whaling Commission meetings, or actually on any diplomatic meeting I've ever read. Corner was really insightful. Uh, he, had, he was an excellent analyst of what each country was doing. Thank goodness for the New Zealand archives and for Frank Corner. But Frank Corner, watching Aristotle Onassis cheat repeatedly through the 1950s. The very first harpoon shot from Onassis' ship was illegal, and the vast majority of them afterwards were illegal. Corner is, struck, is left saying, well, the Panamanians are just like other South Americans. They can't be trusted. That's all he has to say. And this is one of the most insightful guys. He was just completely flustered, besides putting Panama in South America. He was uh, unable to figure out what to do about this arch-capitalist Aristotle Onassis. Eventually, what happens to Aristotle Onassis is the Peruvians bomb his fleet, um, which is another story altogether. So the Soviets. The Soviets had been wailing a little bit before the... International Whaling Commission came together. So this is the Soviet vessel Alut working in the Northern Pacific. But Soviet whaling in the Northern Pacific is small change compared to what's going on in the Antarctic. It's, uh, it's a small industry, doesn't produce a lot of product, nobody's particularly worried about it. At the end of World War II, most of the whaling vessels in the world had been commandeered for military action or had been sunk. So this is the German whaler from the 1930s, the Vikinger which, uh, courtesy of a couple of Allied bombs, was sitting in the mud in Kiel Harbor. 
when the Soviets de declared that it was their reparations, part of the reparations, they took the Vikinger and its killer boats back to uh, the Soviet Union, rechristened it the Slava, and sent it out to sea, glory. Sent it out to the Antarctic for their first whaling expedition in 1946-47. Because the Soviets were showing an interest in whaling, the American government had extended an invitation to the Soviets to come to the whaling convention in 1946, but never got an answer until the day before the meeting, Soviet uh, delegates showed up at the embassy in Moscow and said, we'd like visas to go to the meeting. And the, and the Americans said, well, you could give us a little more warning next time, but sure, we'll process it through. The Soviets went to the meeting. They were, by everybody's account, constructive. The, the conference required their ratification for the International Whaling Commission to become official. So they gave the Soviets uh, one of those six slots that were of mandatory ratifications. And by all accounts, the Soviets in the Whaling Commission were very correct. The sixth chairman of the Whaling Commission was a Soviet um, scientist. The sixth meeting of the Whaling Commission took place in Moscow. By all accounts, it went very well. Um, the only thing that uh, maybe had uh, a little bit of a taint on it was the Australians warned their allies ahead of time that the hotel would be bugged and the food was indigestible. But that was not really anything about the Cold War. That was just Russia. That was just, uh, <laughs> so they didn't have any particular problems. So here's the official view of Soviet whaling. This is the, a stamp with the Soviet Ukraine, the biggest whaling ship in the world. I'll show it to you in a second. And there's the whaling killer boat in front and the happy whale giving itself up for the socialist motherland. Um, this is just a wonderful whaling story. Well, there's also the real story of Soviet whaling. Everybody in the 1950s understood that the Soviets cheated. Everybody. They just didn't know how they were cheating or why, how, and how much they were cheating. How? First of all, early on, whaling ships and whaling crews from other countries would observe Soviet whalers doing things that were against the rules. Starting in 1950, the very first formal violation of the rules that they observed. But every time they presented this data to the Soviets, the Soviets said, oh, well, you don't understand. Actually, we were catching those whales to serve as fenders between our two boats when we were resupplying them, and that's legal. Or, you don't understand, actually you thought they were humpback whales, but actually they were sperm whales which were legal to catch. In fact, they so often used the sperm whale excuse that uh, one British industrialist said that whalers were now calling illegally caught whales Russian sperm, because everything that was illegally caught was a sperm whale they had learned from the Russians. In the very first year out, in 1946, the Russians had gotten a waiver from Norway to hire Norwegians to go on their boats because they had very little whaling experience and Norwegians had a lot. And just to put this in context, the Netherlands tried to get a similar waiver from Norway and Norway said no. So they wouldn't help the Netherlands but they were willing to help the Soviets. Might have been that shared border in the north in the hundred or so Red Army divisions in Eastern Europe that got them thinking about it. The Norwegians who went out on that very first expedition came back and they said, we are never going on a Soviet whaling vessel again. <laughs> One of them died under mysterious circumstances. The other 69 said the conditions were miserable. And I mean, th these are people who had gone to the Antarctic every year of their lives practically. And they're like, we're never going on that boat again. What became clear right away is that the Soviet whalers didn't really know what they were doing. And yet in their second year of operation, they, they reported that the Slava produced 150,000 barrels of whale oil. Now that may sound like a lot or a little until you realize that the most efficient Norwegian vessels were producing 80,000 barrels. So somehow the Soviets, heroes of socialist labor, were producing twice as much as the experts in the field. So their data was immediately suspect, besides the fact that it was always late. 
In the 1990s, Alexei Yablokov, a very brave man who's really made his living uh, challenging the history of Chernobyl and trying to get uh, a full accounting of what happened at Chernobyl, among other things, he was talking to a whaling scientist who said, you know, I'd love to know more about southern right whales, but there have been so few taken, we have so little data. And he said, oh, you need data on southern right whales? We've got data on 2,500 right whale fetuses. This is one of the most endangered species on Earth. And they said, well, how do you have that? And he said, oh, because in the 60s, our whalers were catching all of them, which was completely against the rules. And when they said to Yablokov, you know, they really shouldn't have been doing that, he said, well, let me show you the data. And he published all the data from Soviet whaling. And they found out what the Soviets had been doing. The Soviets kept documents on every whale they caught. Accurate documents, separate from the ones they were reporting to the West. So they, were, they had been able to recreate exactly what the Soviets did. They were over-reporting the species that it was legal to catch with the idea that that would get the world closer to the quota and then all the nations that were living up to the quota would have to leave the whaling grounds. So if you catch 6,000 fin whales but you report 12,000 fin whales, you're closer to the quota, everybody goes home. Sometimes the Soviets stayed behind and kept hunting, but at the very least you've sent the other countries home. And then they were under-reporting all the species they weren't supposed to be catching. So for instance, they had reported catching over a period in the 50s and 60s about 1,500 humpback whales that actually caught 16,000. If you're trying to make conservation decisions based on the data you have, and the data is that completely flawed, you're decisions are going to be completely wrong. But not only that, everybody knew the Soviets were cheating, they just didn't know the extent or which way were they over-reporting or under-reporting. So the honest whaling nations, and the British, Norwegians, Dutch, and Japanese were pretty honest. They basically abided by the rules in the 50s, 40s and 50s. They said, we're not going to accept lower quotas because we know they're based on data that is completely untrustworthy. The Soviet data is worthless. So until we know for sure that the Soviets what they're really doing, we're not going to change what we do, because we're just going to give whales to the Soviets that way. So when Yablokov released his data, a lot of people said, we thought so. Now, interestingly, there were scientists who knew it. They just couldn't prove it. And of course, the data from the 1963 from the whale marks told people that there was clearly some sort of fraudulent activity going on. So here's the Slava, the first ship coming in in 1957 to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the revolution. Very big, powerful whaling ship. They then, the Soviets then put the Soviet Ukraine and Soviet Russia into the water, also in 1957. This was a problem because one vessel, the Slava, alone could not mess up the world's oceans. But if you now have the second and third vessel, and they're the biggest in the world, and the whale stocks are already under pressure, and you're not going to negotiate for lower quotas, while you're telling the West that they're being, you know, bourgeois capitalists who are destroying the resource. So um, the Soviets say, I guarantee you we're looking out for the resource, but it just doesn't add up in the West. The Soviets say, we're going to take 20% of the quota, no matter what. You guys can work out the rest. And the other whaling states have difficulty coming up to, coming to a conclusion in 1957, the, the whaling commission temporarily breaks down. What's fascinating though is that in the workings of the commission, the Soviets, the Soviets actually cooperate. They're pelagic whaling nations with, as I said, Norway, Britain, Japan, and the Dutch, and they generally co cooperate. They have similar interests. They don't fight on Cold War lines. And it's a really a fascinating coalition when you think about them. It. It's like a game of risk. Where else would you find those five countries on the same side, Norway and Japan and, uh, and Russia, and they're struggling for the same thing, which is a higher quota, even as they distrust the Soviets. Here's the uh, 
man behind most of it, Captain Alexei Solyanik. Solyanik was that first hero of socialist labor in the whaling fleets. And he ran these uh, whaling expeditions with an iron fist. In fact, this would later get him in trouble. A couple examples that came out from the Yablokov's research. In his early years, they were reporting the data where they had caught the humpback whales, but they were just making it up. So he put a couple plots on maps and said, basically, tell the Norwegians this is where we caught the whales. And the officer he gave these instructions to said, but sir, these marks are in the ice pack. And he said, we'll let the Norwegians figure out what we're doing. He, didn't, he was like, you know, that's their problem, not mine. Uh, another point, one of his officers reported that he said, there must be a barren desert where the Slava has operated. Catch all whales you meet. Not catch the legal whales, not catch some of the whales, but a barren desert, catch them all. This was Soyanik's idea. In the mid-50s, at these whaling commission meetings, they would have these big parties. The whalers would get together to complain about the scientists and the bureaucrats who were trying to ruin their lives. And one of the British, uh, British whalers, a guy named Salveson, reported to his government that he went up to Solyanik. Salveson was still fighting the Cold War. He didn't want to go to the meeting in Moscow. He said it was like the Munich agreement to go to Moscow in 1955. He wasn't going to go. And then he went anyway. He had a, uh, there was a big whaling party, and he reported afterwards that he said to Solyanik, look, we know you cheat. Why don't you admit to it? And he said, of course I cheat, and you cheat. Everybody cheats. No, nobody actually obeys the rules. And he would not believe Salveson when Salveson said, I have inspectors who measure the whales and make sure they're legal. And so Yannick basically told his inspectors that they could not uh, complain. And there's another example of his inspectors complaining and not getting anywhere. In the end, so Yannick's uh, iron grip gets him in trouble. He actually is one of Brezhnev's uh, favorites. But there's infighting in the 1960s, and it turns out Solyanik has been taking uh, the whalebone and the whale teeth, and when the ships are coming back north and not whaling, he's having his crew carve uh, various intricate art pieces, and then he's going into places like Sydney and trading his art that his crew is making for personal luxury items for himself and his wife. So Solyanik ends up getting in a lot of trouble, but the Soviet whaling industry is insulated from it. So he ends up going, taking the fall, but the industry as a whole survives Solyanik's fall from grace. So Yannick is also crucial in stopping the one thing that might have changed the course of the whaling commission. From the early 1950s, there was an agreement among most of the whaling states that what they needed was an international corps of inspectors. You couldn't have British inspectors on British boats and Russian inspectors on Russian boats because they'd face the pressure. You needed to mix them up. The whaling commission actually agrees to that in 1956. They've actually got a separate treaty agreeing to set this up. And for the next 17 years, the Soviet Union finds some way to stop it, dragging its feet, changing the, its demands. And the rest of the people in the whaling committee are very surprised, the Soviets. They think, they've got many cases where they say, well, we think we finally have the Soviets to agree to something, and they pull away. They don't want foreign inspectors on their boat. They know that there would be trouble. Well, this is the last day of the Soviet Ukraine as it's being broken up in, uh, uh, actually, I think it was in uh, the Black Sea, the Soviet, the Soviet whaling vessel has gone on. You can see, get the scale, I mean, they're tiny people down here. These are huge monster ships. Whaling runs its course in the 1980s and uh, is pretty much done as an industry, except in small isolated pockets around the world. The Russian industry, as it still goes on, is, uh, is a small industry for uh, the far northern part of uh, of Russia and Siberia. There's some use up there, just as there is still whaling in the northern part of the United States and Canada by the indigenous people. 
Well, here's a picture from Paul Watson from his, uh, the, that image that we had on the video earlier. This is Watson kneeling on the whale. Uh, he says later he looks into the whale's eye. There's actually a, one of the controversies about this moment is that there are in fact Japanese inspectors on this Soviet boat. The Greenpeace crew says that this whale is undersized. And the Japanese inspector says, well, it's impossible to tell that from the water. And Watson says, well, I was actually kneeling on the whale, so I think I have a sense for how big it was. Um, and they accuse the Japanese uh, inspectors of being basically bought off by the Soviets. Watson makes that really powerful statement, I work for whales, I don't work for people. That the Cold War is just insane. And I think there's a very strong component in modern environmentalist thinking that basically, uh, we don't, we aren't really citizens of nations, we're citizens of the world. And the world as a whole, this rampant commodification of resources is just out of control. And both sides are equally responsible for this and we have to find some way to stop this and separate ourselves. This is not unique to Watson. Uh, there's a letter I came across in New Zealand's archives from 1974, this 19-year-old writing to his prime minister. He's trying to get New Zealand to be an activist anti-whaling country. And obviously he succeeded since that's basically what New Zealand does in foreign policy, especially with regard to Japan. And he wrote to um, the Prime Minister on Easter Sunday and he said, I find it ironic that we are celebrating the resurrection, he put quotation marks around it, the resurrection of one man 2,000 years ago, yet every day we are killing 400 marvelous beings, these whales, and they will be resurrected as shoe polish. So, really undercutting the whole basis of Western civilization, right? Trying to say this idea of this uh, monotheistic religion, you're basically, this monotheistic religion is allowing you to kill whales and not even think about the consequences and your desire to control nature. Uh, there are uh, other books at the time, Mind in the Waters by Joan uh, uh, McIntyre, that basically says the problem is the Christian vision of creation that the Western society's Western vision of creation is just <coughs> flawed. And Greenpeace is challenging this. I, if you are interested in Greenpeace, read Frank Zelko's wonderful book, Make It a Greenpeace. It's, uh, it's hard to write a bad book about Greenpeace given how funny these guys are. Um, but what we discover, of course, is in his book, the Greenpeacers are not only very shrewd, and they've done wonderful uh, PR campaigns to make whaling an unacceptable way of uh, operation on the sea, but they're incredibly lucky. So that film footage of the whale being harpooned, the last 30 seconds of footage, film that he had in his camera. Not only that, the, film, the cameraman thought his battery was dead because it had been dead early, but he turned it back on just in case and managed to get that iconic image of you know, Greenpeacers being challenged by the harpoon and almost killed by a harpoon as it kills the whales. The other incredibly lucky moment that happens here, and part of the reason why they sort of the sense of uh, almost cosmic, there's something cosmic going on that separates out the Greenpeacers and other environmentalists from the world vision that they're challenging. They, uh, they can hear the Russian radio chatter in 1975 off Northern California, so they know there's the Russian ship out there, Russian ships are out there. But still, finding a whaling fleet in the Pacific Ocean, with, and you've got a boat like that, that's pretty much impossible. So the captain of the boat, who's this old crusty guy, goes to sleep and he tells the guy who's at the wheel, steer 270 degrees, this is the best course to go. Captain goes to sleep, the guy steering the, at the helm basically starts taking drugs, takes off all his clothes, decides to steer to the moon because he wants to see the moon, and what does he do? He runs into the Soviet whaling fleet. <laughs> so, something was going right.
and that's uh, and that's it. All right, so here's the upshot. A couple of the upshots. You have this picture closer to me. This is our image of the Save the Whales movement. I love this picture for all sorts of reasons. It's a huge inflatable whale um, that you know was sort of the, the rage in the late 70s and early 80s to make the point, but it's also being held up by a fitness instructor. Um, this is not our image of Greenpeace, right? But this is Vancouver, and um, you know the Green, Greenpeace has sunk its uh, roots in widely, and everybody's out there with the Save the Whales movement. The Save the Whales movement is very effective for getting things done. I do have some issues with whether or not it sets up a way of re governing the ocean that makes sense. There's also an attempt to boycott the goods from whaling countries. This is particularly powerful in the 1970s when people were already kind of angry about, say, Japanese imports. But how do you boycott things from the Soviet Union? What are you going to boycott? Nobody in the United States is buying anything from the Soviet Union. Maybe you don't fly an Aeroflot, but you wouldn't want to fly an Aeroflot anyway. So, um, it's, uh, so they're, they're focused on boycotting. They don't have anything, they don't have any way to put pressure on the Soviets. Even if they had goods from the Soviet Union that they thought they could boycott, they didn't think the Soviets would actually bend because some Americans decided not to buy those Soviet goods. And these are the people who built the Berlin Wall. They're not going to bend because, you know, some school kids write letters to them saying, please stop hunting whales. So there's pressure on the Japanese. There's pressure on the Norwegians. There's not pressure on the Soviets. They can't find a way to put pressure, and they don't think it's going to happen. And I particularly want to come back to Paul Watson here, because I think his story is particularly uh, important. These are two Norwegian whaling vessels, which Paul Watson's crew uh, had and they sank in the 19, early 1980s, and here's a picture of him uh, going basically in the media to talk about it. Um, there's a picture of him, the modern uh, Paul Watson, who of course, I love this image of the Sea Shepherd. It's the skull and crossbones that they fly, right? a pirate ship image, um, but it has the harpoon, the trident, uh, because they're out there on the whale warriors defending the ocean. And then on the, one of uh, Watson's ships, here are all the whaling ships that he's sunk. Interestingly, also with the pirate whaler vessel, the Skull and Crossbone. But here are the Norwegian ships. They sank um, uh, three Icelandic ships, and then they also sank two Spanish ships. When he sank the Norwegian ships, he sank them, went to another country, and then offered to turn himself in to Norwegian authorities. Because what he wanted was the publicity. He wanted the trial. He wanted to put Norwegian whaling on trial in Norway and force Norwegians to see what they were doing. It would have been a lost cause. I talked to a Norwegian economist a couple years ago and asked him about the Save the Whales movement. He said, I don't understand. We grew up in northern Norway. We had chicken, or we, we had, excuse me, we had whale every week and chicken was a delicacy. Uh, we know exactly what we were doing. We were eating whale all the time because there was no chicken. It was far north Norway. There's, that, that was what we had to eat. <laughs> When, in the early 1980s, though, Watson decided to make an issue with Soviet whaling, he went up to the far northern reach of the Soviet Union to try to break up a Soviet whaling camp. And as he says in his memoirs, he took special uh, measures. He wrapped his ship in barbed wire and greased the sides to repel borders, something he never did when he was taking on the Norwegian or Spanish ships. And as soon as he, was, uh, he thought the Russians were onto him, he got on his ship and went as fast as he could to get into uh, international waters to get away from the Soviet ship. He, didn't, he actually wasn't going to make it. He doesn't know why the Soviets decided not to catch him. But he was quite frank that he did not want to get caught by the Soviets. He did not expect to get equal treatment like he would from the Norwegians. He was hoping to get publicity, but he did not want to be in a trial. And actually, if you follow this case, there was just this case... Uh, 
last year where some Greenpeace activists went up in northern uh, Russia and they were arrested and they were basically held as, as terrorists against the state, bless you. So, I think Watson suggests that there, even the environmentalists understood that there was a pretty big difference that they wanted to accept, uh, even if they couldn't admit to it. So when the Soviets were took on whaling, they treated whales like the Westerners' environmental amenities to squeeze them for a profit. Outwardly, they're committed to science, they're committed to being good citizens of the Whaling Commission, but secretly they have this rash of destruction that they're keeping from the West and keeping from the rest of the world. It only comes out really by accident. And I think that this deception has serious global consequences. For one thing, had the Whaling Commission actually worked, it would have set a model for using science to regulate the oceans. And it had a chance. If people had actually, if the Soviet data had been accurate and people had trusted it, they probably could have negotiated a reduction in the quota and possibly put whaling on a sustainable course. Whether that's good or bad is, is separate, but as opposed to just an outright failure, there would be some benefit to that. I think ultimately then, environmentalists, even as they said, the whole world is insane, their actions suggested that they did not think the whole world was insane. There were different levels of insanity in different parts of the world. So thank you. I'd be happy to take questions. Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs>